and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 19, beginning verse 21 uh, through 41. God's Word declares, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some, therefore, cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, we want to... Uh, <laughs> I should first just say I know you're going to be really distracted by all this stuff on the wall behind me. Um, I'm actually going to reference a little bit this morning, I think. Uh, but uh, this is from Sunday night. And if you think this is what I did last week, um, this is actually 15 years old. And so, 14 years old. So this is nothing I did in the last week or month. I haven't been downstairs coloring. This has just been all around. But uh, I encourage you to come if you'd like to. Uh, we're getting close toward the end of our study in Revelation. And I uh, encourage you, though, that if you'd like to come to participate in that. 
But we're going to be talking about Ephesians. Not the book of Ephesians, but the people. The residents of a city uh, in Asia Minor, current-day Turkey. city of Ephesus, one of the jewels in the Roman Empire that has, as in our study, been impacted by the gospel. And we're going to find out just how extensive and how uh, fully that impact is felt today. Uh, but we obviously have already seen its effect on the Christian community last week as we found that these people were not given to a small faith nor given to a lax uh, Christianity, but as we find in the book of Revelations, they were heralded for their great love of God. A love that moved them to exclusively serve Him. We saw that last week as the evidence, the proof, the, the uh, means by which we measured that was their uh, quick desire to distance themselves from what they were and press themselves into what they ought to be in Christ. That in the mix of this was an act of fear. That there was a certain fearfulness because of the seriousness of the topic. The seriousness of the issue of what are you doing in terms of your walk with Christ. Um, not whether you call yourself Christian by name or by tradition, but rather, how are you following the way, the way of Jesus Christ? This is the question. There were those who would use the name Jesus, but did not know who he was, and we saw the effect on them, and it was this very event of the overpowering of seven by one with the help of an evil spirit. Demonstrate that you don't play. This is not a magic formula. This is not some uh, game that we are engaged in. Uh, but there is a serious matter. This is the one true and living God who is the uh, ruler of all the earth, who is the righteous judge that all men must stand before. And on that basis, we come to him with a certain fearfulness, recognizing that he sets the standards that is for us to adopt them as our own. And of course, we saw the people there in Ephesus doing that, and, and we listed, or had listed for us, 12 men. That this is what Paul began with. Along with his entourage, he had 12 men ready to receive the Holy Spirit to make sure that we have the right Jesus, not just a Jesus. Not just a Savior, but specifically Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who came lived perfectly, died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That Jesus. We find these twelve men were ready to receive Him, having already committed themselves to a Messiah. Now they were thrilled to find out that there is the Messiah to follow. And they became followers of the way. And their sense of full commitment 
to the things of Christ is evident in their impact on this community and the outlying region as well. We're going to see how fully this morning, as we look into its effect on not just the church of Ephesus, but the entire city. Let's go, Lord, first in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look in your word. And we pray you might work in us by your spirit. That we might not only be taught and engage our minds in understanding, but that we might also be ready to comply. That we might be ready to receive it into our hearts, into our very lives, and let your word and its truth uh, define us and even be uh, dictate to us how we ought then to live and that we might be ready servants of yours. Again, we pray you might guard this time, as always, from error and opinion, that you might have the preeminence and what is said, received, and lived. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in chapter 19 of Acts. Um, we come to a time when, by the evidence of burning of the past, the church has shown that they are going to follow after Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That there is not going to be any lingering uh, resources available to them to even go back. They're going to burn those bridges. That is not going to be a place that they are going to consider going back to. They, they evidently did this in a very public way, in a way that people were keeping records, and uh, they were able to uh, say how valuable all the books were that were on sorcery that were burned that day. Um, this was uh, a powerful working of purifying the church and of setting her aside, of sanctifying her to the Lord God. Being set apart. And the question that again is, comes up in Revelation, again comes up in Ephesians, and in many other passages, John, Peter, is, what do you love? What do you love? The question um, that we need to continue to pursue is, do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, all of it? Is it captivating me? Uh, we sang the song, um, In the Home or in the Throng, this morning. Uh, and that's just a poetical way of telling us in private or in public, what's going on? What do you love? What are you living for? What gets you excited? What makes you jump out of bed and gets you thrilled to face the day? What do you love? And I'm using the wrong term and I know it. Because I should be asking you a question, who do you love? But I'm using the word what because most of what really motivates us and what we really uh, our hearts chase after are what's and not who's. And so we're going to talk about the way instead of the one whose way we follow, Jesus Christ, as the what. And do we love the way that we profess or is it 
just something that uh, is incidental to our lives. It's not critical. Um, it crosses us once a week or twice a week here and there. Um, this crosses our life, but it is not uh, the lane that we will never leave. It's simply one of those intersections of our lives. That the real way that we live is the other things that we love. And this, the Ephesians wanted to declare and make it perfectly clear, there is only one that we will follow after, and it will be Jesus Christ. They evidence that in a public fashion by burning their past. Their past affections, their past uh, interests, uh, those were gone. They were new creatures. And when we look into the book of Ephesians, we can see Paul's, uh, almost Paul remembering that in some of the phrases that he uses and his encouragements to them and his challenges to them uh, throughout that book. John also ministered um, towards the end of his life here in this city of Ephesus. Uh, tradition tells us that uh, the mother of our Lord, Mary herself, was with John and lived in Ephesus and died there and is buried. If you go there today, they have a little chapel kind of thing set up where they believe she was buried. Uh, so this becomes a very important community within the community of, of uh, the church in Ephesus. So we um, look at uh, this calling of God on the people to be different. And we see very little of it in our day where we are just trying to sneak our faith in here and there and applauding ourselves for doing so. And our pastors are knocking their heads on the wall trying to insert a little scripture in your life here and there, um, maybe uh, trying to get to draw out a little Christian living, a little bit better, slightly better than the world, um, and largely they're failing and frustrated. And I share that sometimes. We saw the necessity of this act if our church is to grow mightily and if the word of the Lord is to prevail. That is to overcome. We all want overcoming faith, but we don't necessarily realize that the first thing it overcomes is our sin. That that's the first necessity, is that our, the word of God prevail over us, over our will, our heart, our former loves. That these things that were so precious to us never seemed to pale. We wanted to add Christ instead of replace all of that with Christ. And so, uh, we don't see much of what happens in Ephesus in the larger community happening around us because the reality is that we have little effect on our community because God's Word has had little effect on our lives. Let's look at it very quickly to see what is the way to look out into the world, not just in the church. We looked into the church and saw the evidence of, I'm going to get rid of these things out of my life from my past. I'm going to live a new life for Christ. And we saw that last week. But now we're going to look out into the world because not only should there be proof in church, not only should there be proof in your home, 
in your life. Um, but there should also be some manifestations of your faith impacting your society, your community. And let's look at these beginning verse 20. I have a little side I'm going to do very quickly, and then we're going to get into the events there uh, in the great uh, uh, amphitheater of Ephesus. Uh, the Verse 21 says that Paul had a uh, understanding. Um, it says he had purpose in the Spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia, he had to go to Jerusalem. And he made this statement in verse 21, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. I just want to plant a little seed of thought into your mind um, that already we are a long ways away from Paul getting arrested. Already God has seen fit to reveal to him in a very unique and powerful way um, by, by instilling in Paul a drive. And that drive is going to lead him somewhere that most of us would not want to go, and that is to prison. <laughs> That's where it's going to lead him. And we often think, well, God is revealing this, and we're going to see this later on when other prophets from other churches are going to come to him and, and, and very picturesquely point to him and say, um, please don't go to Jerusalem, please don't do this. Um, and, and they also are going to be led by the Spirit. And it might seem like that's a con conflicting thing, um, but I just want to contend with you that already, very, very early on, Paul already has been instructed by the Spirit that his ministry isn't going to be in a place like Ephesus. It's not going to end there. God is not done with him. And it is not so much trying to keep him from going to Jerusalem, but try to prepare him for what's coming in Jerusalem. That God showing you where and how you should minister is not so much to prevent you from the discomforts of bad things happening as much as to prepare you for those bad things happening. That's just a little seed. We'll investigate that weeks from now. But I just want to plant that seed because we're going to come back to this verse then you think about the distinction between God telling you something bad is going to happen so you can avoid it or so you can be prepared to embrace it. All right, let's go to verse 22. A little extra there just for future reference. So, off goes Timothy and Erastus. Um, Paul is preparing the way for his trip. He's still there um, in Ephesus having a very bountiful ministry from the evidence uh, internally in the church that we saw last week in verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose, arose a great commotion about the way. And this way, the way of Christ, the way of, of the Master Jesus, um, is starting to get some attention. Not just from within the church, but from without the church. It's starting to have an impact. Uh, and the first impact that's going to be felt, uh, we should expect it, uh, the first impact that matters to most people, right, is the economic impact. Come on, let's be honest. That's really the first impact that matters to the world, is economics. Let's just face it, we, we'll tolerate a lot of things as long as it doesn't pinch me in the standard of living category. We'll tolerate a lot. And in fact, um, Americans are tolerating incredible breaches of your constitutionally 
guaranteed rights, um, and we welcome them because we are fearful of any economic uh, repercussions if we don't. And so we are just permitting incredible things happening uh, to protect and to, quote-unquote, to guard uh, our individual economies. Um, but here the, the church was so effectual uh, in calling people to a singular following of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake that it is that, and that particularly, that is going to create the uh, concern of the silversmiths. Is that if Paul had come in preaching, add Jesus to your list of loves. It's okay if you love that. It's okay if you love that. If it's okay if you love that, just add the love of God to it. Add the love of God to your favorite forms and, and examples of entertainment. Just, you can love that. Just add the love of God to it. It's okay if, if you love um, the material things and the things of this world. Just add the love of God. If that had been Paul's message, there would have been no problems in Ephesus that day. The fact is, and the reality, was that the message of Christ is an exclusive message. It says, love me and not the world. Anyone who loves the world, love of the Father, isn't in him. Bam! We are confronted with that. And it is that exclusive message. What do you love? And God says, love me with all your heart. That is an undivided that it is not a shared relationship. That he is not one among your loves, but he is that which defines you, which you will live for, that you will commit yourself fully to, um, so that in comparison to that relationship with him, when Jesus says, um, if you don't hate your family, you're not a mine. What does he tell you? You have to be mean and spiteful to your family members that go up and smack them and kick them? No, that's not what he's teaching, obviously, right? What is he saying? He's saying when people look at you and they see your relationship with God and they see your relationship with your children, with your parents, with whatever family members those are, um, they look at you and say, compared to your relationship with God, you hate your kids. You hate your parents. You would choose God over them every single time. And oh, that that would be our testimony. The world would look at it and say, man, you choose God over anyone, wouldn't you? And when someone comes to me and says that, I jump up and down inside. I really do. Not with anger. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's what it means. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. That no other relationship can, can penetrate that and to, and to wear that down. And, and I know that it is rare. And I know that it is difficult. Anyone that says the relationship with Christ is an easy street is lying profusely. They either don't know what the way is or they've never walked three steps on it because the way of Christ is a hard one. Yeah, it's hard. If you love these people more than me, you're not worthy of me. That's a hard thing. I've walked there. I know it. They'll say, how can you do that to your own family? Well, I didn't choose them. Right? But I chose Christ. 
I didn't choose who my siblings would be, but I chose Christ. I didn't choose who my children would become. I had influence on them, but I didn't make those choices. They're making choices in their own life. But I chose Christ. And our allegiance is to Him alone. That message, that concept, created an economic vacuum. Now, we might look at the burning of how many thousands? Let me see here. Was it 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books and say, well, there's an economic loss, but not really, because at some point those believers had purchased those books before they were believers, had purchased that, so the economic gain to the larger community was already felt, and the fact that they burned them and didn't resell them on Craigslist um, simply that anyone wanted them would have to go out and purchase new ones. So, so there wasn't really an economic uh, pinch there too much, but it was this exclusive message that eventually, well, of course, not very many people are going to be buying new books if this keeps up. But what do you do with all these idols? What do we do with all the economic activity around the Temple of Diana. In our study on Sunday night, last night we got introduced to the harlot. And one of the things we talked about was her luxury um, and uh, how connected. Tonight we're going to really talk about the connection between the merchants of the earth and religion. Kind of interesting. It's going to be tonight and today we already we have a great example of it. So it's going to really dovetail these two messages Today, uh, God is really good that way sometimes. Most, all, all right, all the time. He's really good that way. <laughs> yeah, God's only good sometimes. He's good at that all the time. So we're going to have this dovetail. And uh, one of the things Revelation talks about is that the merchants of the earth are going to weep at the destruction of the harlot by the beast. Why are they weeping? Why? Because... They're losing out on all that money they could have made on religion because religion, believe it or not, is a big-time moneymaker. If you don't believe me, go to something called a Christian bookstore and see how many books are actually in there compared to everything else. <laughs> For every trinket, every little thing, uh, and, and, all, and, and by the way, this isn't new to our society. They didn't have Christian bookstores back here. But... but the opportunity to make money within the sphere of religious practice has never been lost um, since the beginning of nations and the beginning of false religions. Way back here, under Nimrod and Semiramis. That idea has been pretty consistent all through history of both of those entities. And here is no difference. These men were making money. And by the way, this is what Christ had a problem with in the temple, remember? The money changers and all the economy that was going on there in the temple when pilgrims were showing up and because they traveled such a distance, they couldn't bring a little animal to, so they had to buy one there and they were selling it. They had to exchange their, their uh, currency from whatever country they came from, from, from temple to temple shekels. And there was... Uh, not a fair trade there always. Uh, the exchange rate was, was pretty deplorable. 
Uh, and so we had all these means of getting rich off of the pilgrims coming to worship in Jerusalem. So, so Israel wasn't immune to this either. And so here comes the guy, Paul, and he comes into town and he preaches this message. People start getting excited about it. They receive it and they re- understand that this makes everything different. That now this isn't just a god to add to the gods of the pantheon of Rome, but rather, or Greek, or go all the way back. Um, but this is the one true and living God. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And he is not formed. In fact, he specifically says, do not make any graven image, not just of himself, but of anything in heaven and anything on earth to worship. (coughs) Kind of makes you want to get rid of your lawn art, doesn't it? Just a thought. We love figurines. and We have figurines in our house. Not to worship, though. Exclusive claim. I don't need this stuff. Now, silver is different than books. Books you burn. Silver you melt down. Right? You've just gained economically. So now, you have access to money. You can melt that idol down, and uh, no one's buying the silver. In fact, now, silver is flooding the market because people are melting down their idols that they were using for worship, and now they can turn it into something that they can use to buy and to barter with. The silversmiths are starting to feel the pinch. No one's buying their stuff. And I would think that there's going to be a flood of some silver on the market. Neither one of which are going to really help the economy. And this Demetrius points out very clearly. This economic connection between the marketplace between the, the merchants and religion. And the true gospel explodes that relationship. And I want to explore that a little bit here in a moment, but let's go through our text here, see the event. I want you to look at Verse 24, a certain man named Demetrius Silversus made silver shrines and died and brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Yes, they had unions back then. And so he, he was one of the better ones at it and he had quite the name and uh, so he brought a lot of the profit into this group and uh, all the suppliers as well and uh, marketers and whatever other ancillary companies and, and employees he had. Um, so he calls together the workers of similar occupation as the leader of, the, of this union, if you will. Uh, men, you know we have our prosperity by this trade. He understands that the worship of this goddess is directly linked to his standard of living, to his trade. And he recognizes that this is an assault on his job, on his work. He knows that it's not just in Ephesus, verse 26. This is not a Christian man. This is not a Christian man uh, uh, or a preacher talking about how great his ministry is. This isn't a missionary on report to its attending church. This is the enemy. His statement is, it's not just going on in Ephesus. I can't even sell my stuff out into the region. And in fact, it's penetrating the whole Roman Empire. Verse 
It says, Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods, which are made with hands. And that's becoming, going to be an important phrase later on, towards the end of the uh, shouting pep rally um, <laughs> there in Ephesus. Uh, and that is, is, what about these things made with human hands? I take ore out of the earth. We refine it with some fire. We take the silver, the gold. We fashion it into this thing with our own hands. We set it on a shelf, and then we bow down and kneel to it. And that is how most religions worship. In India, they don't even do all that work. They just paint a rock. Put it in a little special little place, and they bow down and worship to a rock that they just painted little colors on. But they still manipulated it. They still set it up in an unusual position um, and think that somehow it's going to answer prayers and uh, do things for them. Uh, and this was Paul's statement is, this isn't God. God is not something you can manipulate. God is the one who created us. We don't create him. We're made in his image. We don't make him into any image. Even Demetrius understood the message that there is only one God and that all these idols are not gods. And so he understood the financial, the economic danger. It says in verse 20, we're in danger. This trade of ours is in danger. Now he's going to, this is the, the, the real movement. This is the real purpose. We're going to protect our way of life. We're going to protect our standard of living. In order to do that, because our standard of living is derived from the worship of Diana, then it's in our economic interest to make sure that the worship of the goddess Diana in Ephesus is also protected. I see no evidence that these men were particularly uh, committed to Diana. They're committed to their trade their standard of living. That's what they were committed to. And Diana was simply the means to the end. And that is the relationship between the merchant and the harlot. In Revelation. That, yeah, there's, oh, you know, we, we, we're not going to go against the empires, but the nations, but, oh, what loss we're going to have economically when all this comes down and, and they stand from a distance and weep. But they're not weeping because they loved false religion. They're weeping because of their lost profits. Think of the money we could have made or that we have been making and we can't any longer. And this, Demetrius, communicates very effectually. Well, since it's your profits you want to protect, since Diana is the means for those profits, then we're going to have to Invoke men's jealousy over this great temple of Diana in Ephesus. And it was magnificent. Wow. Um, when we talk about jewels of Rome, this was not only uh, in terms of the library there, 
um, in, of Celsius that's in Ephesus. And yes, that's the Celsius that you think of, of temperature. Um, not only of the amphitheater and the port and the economics of it, but the temple to Diana was pretty much almost second to none. And so, to protect prophets, we we're going to raise up an accusation. The accusation is <clears throat> the worship of Diana is at risk. Not our prophets are at risk. That's not the communication they're going to make publicly. Privately, among their own trade people, they recognize we've got to protect our business. But publicly, the statement is, is that they are going to assault Diana and here one of the most magnificent temples in all of the world is under duress because of this one guy who's going around saying that there's only one true and living God and you have to follow the way and people are burning books and melting down their idols and not going up to the temple to worship. And the result is the mob scene. And again, we have seen mob scenes before in Acts, have we not? And we know what drives them. What drives them is not thoughtfulness. What drives them is not truth. What drives them is not a, a specific concern. Uh, it just doesn't take any, hardly anything to start and to drive a mob. And Albuquerque has proved it in recent months. It just doesn't take much. And so they stir up the whole city and pretty soon everyone is channeling down the colonnades and, and moving past the library of Celsius, right into the great amphitheater that overlooks the port of Ephesus. It still stands today, the amphitheater. Seats tens of thousands. Oh, hundreds and some thousands. Yeah, you thought our Colosseums were big. Rose Bowl had nothing over that. In a natural hillside that just accentuated the acoustics. And can you imagine these tens of thousands of voices shouting out this phrase over and over again that just would have shaken the city. Nobody really knows why we're doing this, but everyone loves a good pep rally. Don't we? I was in the group of kids that call them sweat fests. So we couldn't see the purpose for them other than just going in there sweating with all your classmates in the hot gym. We weren't big supporters of the team, I guess. So they're just going to support the team. They don't really know what's at issue. A small group were riled up and started, and they got loud, and, and, and who knows what... Uh, apparently the Jews were caught up. And remember, this is the season when the Jews uh, are not on the good side of Rome, and so probably the, the Jews were part of the problem. So they sweep in a Jewish man. The Jews put him forward to speak, and they found he's a Jew, and that just makes them more angry, and they yell even louder. Um, they don't want, they're going to drown him out. They yank this fellow out of there. Um, Paul's ready to go and defend himself. Not a chance. No, 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 no. The brethren don't let him. Why? Because you don't reason with these kind of people. Jesus could not reason with the mob yelling out, crucify him. Neither could Pilate. Could he? Pilate says, I find no fault in him. What's your issue? We'll just crucify him. 
Because you don't reason with moms. That's why you don't use mega... You just can't do it. you got to let it run its course. And for two hours it runs its course and they're all sweaty and they're all getting exhausted and they're all losing their voices. <laughs> it finally gets quiet enough that one of the leaders of the city can get up and say, wait a minute, what is this all about? We know Demetrius' group started this, but there's no one that we're accusing. And we got courts if there's some true thing going on, illegally. But he also makes a statement in the midst of this that I want to address before I go back to the way. And that's in verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Verse 36. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So, he comes before them with certain things that, as far as he's concerned, are absolute truths for the Ephesians. Number one is that they are the center of Diana worship. And that is absolutely true. There is, that's a fact. That if you wanted to worship Diana particularly, that you would go to Ephesus, you would go to that temple, because that was the greatest temple to Diana anywhere. This was the center of Diana worship. Much like Corinth was the center more of the worship of Apollos. So here in Ephesus, Diana is the key. The, the, the goddess of the city. Um, and so they're the temple guardians. But he's going to address the one issue that Demetrius was using uh, that he recognized in this Christian message um, was problematic. And that was the things made with hands aren't God's. Well, now, this city official comes in and he wants to settle this matter by introducing this other part of Diana worship, and that is uh, the history, the tradition in Ephesus. The reason that Ephesus became the temple guardians for Diana was the tradition that Zeus himself sent down um, this giant goddess statue and in instructed the Ephesians on how to worship Diana. That they were really the, the ones that Zeus entrusted with this responsibility. That somehow this image in the temple of Diana was not humanly constructed. That's interesting. Now, it just happened, and Zeus brought it and dropped it on us, and, and so this must be a goddess, or at least a link to the goddess, because it fulfills the requirement of Paul that it's not made with human hands. The problem is it's still just a hunk of metal, and it's still just a thing. It's not animated. It's not it can't speak. It can't hear. It doesn't move. It is dead. And so he's addressed one aspect of 
the message. And yet, we recognize that someone did make it. And I hope you do are able to recognize things that are made by human hands. I remember visiting one of the places up there in Santa Fe and that this miracle staircase, you guys seen that, that was supposed to have just arrived or something or angels brought it or something and it was like, well, you can see the tool marks in the wood. I mean, someone put a tool to this wood. It didn't just pop out of a tree as a staircase. Um, it, it was fashioned by human hands. Sometimes I have machine tools, which means it was even later um, to turn wood to make banisters and rails. But to encourage this false belief system, we invent this idea that somehow there wasn't a human agent involved. And so, um, he's trying to negate the message of Paul by insisting that they have a living God who brought down this image from heaven. And yet, they've never seen Diana. She does not move, does not speak, does not hear. But his contention is you cannot deny. Says, Everyone knows that this image just fell. It just, and here it is. Um, some of your versions uh, where it says Zeus in the New King James would say it just fell from heaven. The Dinah just fell from heaven here and, and it plopped in Ephesus and it just happened. So whether you attribute it to just coming, dropping out of the sky or whether you attribute it to the work of a, another deity that we have no proof of, um, either way, it's pretty much just by randomness we have come to uh, be the guardians of this thing that uh, we now worship. And of course, we don't have any of that ideas going on today, right? That just by randomness things happened, and so we worship nature instead of the Creator. We have it all over. And we can't deny that. Try going in and denying that things just happened. That God created. You can't do it. They won't allow you. I heard Jeremy talking, overheard, overheard Jeremy talking to my son last week about all of his science classes at school. And he's like, don't even try to engage the professors. Your conversations that will matter with your fellow students in the area of creation, evolution. Because they'll say that it can't be denied. Science proves it. Science has proved nothing. Science can't prove anything. It can just observe what is. And so the call is to go back to some reasonableness, get out of your mob mentality, and that's as far as it goes. So, that's the proof. Not within the church, but from outside. Things are beginning to change, transform in Ephesus. And this transformation should be evident here. 
we should have an impact on the community. And this isn't unusual. This isn't a singular case study that never happens again um, like this. In fact, uh, throughout all of the great revivals, there is evidence that there has been an economic impact on community after community as bars were closed. No reason to have them. As places of prostitution dried up and went away, no one was interested anymore. In some places, um, police were laid off. We didn't need police anymore. Julie's like, oh no, it was my job. In fact, um, you've heard me say this before, that during the Welsh revival, um, this is the source of the barbershop quartets. Those were laid-off policemen who had nothing to do but go around and sing. So next time you think about a barbershop quartet, think about police that don't have work to do because Christians are following the way to such an extent that who needs cops around? So they just got together in groups and went off singing. The fact is that the expectation of Christ for the church is that we not only live our faith at home, in the church, in the private settings, but in the throng. That we live it out there. And we live it to such a degree and so consistently that it, that it has a powerful effect on the economy, on the way of life, on, on health, on safety, on all these things that society says they care about, on the environment, all of those things are fully addressable once we have Christians living out true Christianity, impacting a society with it, and, and growing the word of the Lord and prevailing. Because the fact is that all these ills in society are the result of men's sinfulness. And once we have this word, this verse in place, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And again, I ended last week with the word, that idea that the prevailed is prevailed over sin. When the word of the Lord prevails over sin, then society itself will necessarily improve. It just will. Because men will go out with the love of God in their heart being foremost, first and foremost, and that will disseminate then into pleasing God in every relationship, whether that be relationship be at work, whether that be with family, whether that be with, with my animals, whether that be with, uh, with, with my land, with my crops, with my uh, business, um, whatever things I'm involved with, I'm going to glorify God with those. Once that starts happening, and the domino effect of the prevalence the prevailing aspect of the Word of God, it starts to affect a community like that, we see uh, this kind of tension now. And the fact is, is, the world makes money off of sin. Let's just admit it. it power, there's power in sin. You don't believe me? Go downtown and look at the most substantial, some of the most substantial buildings down there. 
They're courthouses. We got three of them on three corners of one intersection. They're very impressive, aren't they? They're there because of sin. Period. You go up to our government, you go up to the state house, you go in to see all that activity, all that all those people with self-importance, and they're all there because of sin. Sin requires more government, sin requires more regulations, and because people are irresponsible, because they are glorifying God, um, we have to have all these more additional laws, we have to have all these codes for construction, because men aren't godly. And so they're going to cheat their customers, and we have all those building codes, because there's some contractors out there, in fact, there's not some, most contractors out there without those codes are going to stiff the people they're building for, and their buildings are going to be substandard. Every code is there because some builder took a shortcut to save a dime. Because sin is profitable. Economically. People make money off of sin all the time. And when the Christian community goes out there in the world, and by the way, it, and it is just a Mushroom effect from local economy to national and international economy. Um, once Christians start really living like Christians, the word of the Lord truly prevails and penetrates society through a through a revival. Uh, through a, not a, it's not really a revival because everyone's de- well. I guess they're revived from the dead. Um, when we have the, the gospel going out and evangelistic fervor happening and people coming to Christ not as a love but as the love of their life and it starts to transform them, we should see this kind of, of response. We already do see it. I hope, I hope you see it in microcosm in your workplace. Um, I remember several jobs that I went into and, and uh, I remember one time right near the restroom, I got accosted by a couple of coworkers. What are you doing? It's like, what do you mean? I'm going to the bathroom. What are you doing here? Why are you working so hard? Are you trying to make us all look bad? Uh, I'm doing my job. If it makes you look bad, it means you're not doing your job. That didn't sit so good with these two guys. Um, but on a microcosm, that's what it boils down to. The man of God is going to go into his workplace and recognize he has responsibility to glorify God by providing his employer uh, the full range of, of energy and talents that he is to apply to that position to make money for his boss. And yes, that's going to go against sometimes union rules. And yes, it will uh, bother co-workers um, and might even get you promoted ahead of others. Um, <laughs> That never sits very well with people um, and might make some enemies. There, even in a microcosm of a single life in a single office building, there um, should be an effect. Honesty. Do you realize how much money is made because of lies? I'm pretty sure that is most of the marketing world today. And we have lots of laws saying you can't say that because it's not true. Truth in marketing laws. Why? Because men are willing to lie to get your money. Right? What happens when Christians go out there and speak the truth? It transforms things. What if we apply God's word consistently and say, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat? 
Why do we need soldiers and weapons if we have internationally penetrated? Oh, it just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? And all of a sudden we're like, boy, this is all because of sin. Yes. So where does the word of the Lord prevailing start? It starts in your heart. I can sit there and talk about international politics and things going on with ISIS and and wars and rumors of wars. I can go uh, into national and talk about our debt and our welfare state and and the proliferation of of laws uh, so no one can really know what's in any of them. Um, and we can we can go down to concern ourselves with thugs on the street and and but it really begins by what do you love? What do you love? And do you love God enough to burn the bridges of the past? Because the impact on society doesn't start at the international level. It started here with twelve guys. He said, we're going to love the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. We're going to follow this God, this Savior, this Jesus. Not just the one whom Paul preaches, but the one who saved me. And the church, because they feared the Lord, said, we're going to live it out. And we're going to burn this past and we are not going to keep resources to keep ourselves plugged in to that old way. We don't want that filling our mind. We don't want those images in our house. We don't want to engage in that activity at all. We want to divorce ourselves from that entirely. We want to be these new creatures that Christ has made us into. And when 12 men, it started with them, well, it really started with, just with Paul and his guys showing up, 12 men in this community, And by the time it was all over, it had mushroomed into this. Great is Diana of the Ephesians and a citywide riot. Because he had transformed the community by the power of God. That church had transformed the region. And so instead of being the jewel of Rome, it became one of the jewels of Christendom. And one of the seven churches there in Revelation. But by that time, which is just a generation, about 40 years, the indictment was they lost their first love. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long to rebuild old bridges if we lose our love for God. It doesn't, it's not hard to go back to the old ways of thinking, of living, and yes, even of being incapable of transferring our love to another generation. To tell young people that the ways of the world are dangerous, whether they are in the digital age, or back in the ages when I lived, they were dangerous, and they still are, and they still will be. And they cannot have your love and still serve God. 
cannot be. What do you love? Above everything, above all, not just with your mind, but with your heart. What do you love? You see, I'm pretty sure all of us in our minds here today, because we're here today, would say, I love the Lord. And we would declare that, and we would say it, because our brain believes it. But our hearts betray us. And what we really long for and hunger after and thirst for doesn't seem to be in agreement with what our words say and what our brains tell us. This week I was reading in one gentleman's A.W. Tozer. This was his concern so many years ago. He said one of the problems that Christians don't live their lives according to the way is that they believe with their brain and not their heart. They believe with their brain before their heart. And so they make statements in church that they're going to live a certain way and they go home and fail because mentally they agree that that was necessary. But in their heart, they still love the things of this world. The love of God was not real to them. And so when the believers love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, it'll be noticed. It'll be noticed within the church. It'll be noticed within your home. It will be noticed in your society. But far above all those is it'll be noticed from heaven and noted. And that is where the fear of the Lord that penetrates even into the heart really begins. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the powerful testimony of the Church of Ephesus and their effect on their community to such a point that it became economically disruptive was transforming their whole society. And Lord, we quickly can see that we have almost no such influence on ours, it would seem. And we need to confess this of a sin of divided love. ask your forgiveness very carefully as we consider whether we will change and give you all of our selves all of who we are to you Lord we pray that you might move in us to do so not only with our lips not only with our minds but with our hearts and nothing and no one will compare to you in us. Help us, Lord, in this. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.